Romans 15, verse 5, it says, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that you've given us here to open up your word and learn from you, Lord. Um, I just pray that you would give us um, understanding this morning and wisdom from your word. That you would use this fallible preacher to preach forth your infallible word for your glory. In the name of Christ. Amen. So, I didn't do a good job of construct on this message, but before we get into that, let's look at the uh, let's let's think a little bit on the review of what was come before this portion of Romans right here. Um, remember, Paul through Romans one through eleven teaches the doctrine of the gospel and what it means and what it means to us. Um, and then ch- starting in chapter 12, then he's teaching us how we should respond if we actually believe Romans 1 through 11. If we say that we believe Romans 1 through 11, then re- Romans chapter 12 through 16 should be how we should apply it. And if you ever, when you spend time in the Pauline epistles, uh, the letters that Paul wrote, uh, almost every single one of them starts with doctrine. He starts with doctrine, what you should be thinking, what he, he presents us Christ, and then he says, and now act like this in the latter portions. Um, so that's what, you know, as a preacher, that's what I seek to do, present doctrine, and then we should act like this. Um, because that seemed like the biblical model. Um, right thinking precedes right actions. In this section here, what we've been dealing with is receiving one another to not judge one another, to um, not cause your brother to stumble, not offend your brother or sister, but to receive one another. And I'll bring it up again, but I don't know if you remember, I mentioned I think the chapter break should come after verse 7 of this chapter instead of where they put it at. Remember the chapter breaks aren't inspired by the Lord. Um, men come along and added the verses and chapters. Um, but I, I would say if we if we were to make a chapter break, I think it should be chapter... 14 verse 1 all the way to chapter 15 and verse 7. But I argue in vain on that because I can't change it. So now let's let's get into our, our text here. and We'll look at this first point as the God of patience and consolation. It says, verse 15, or verse 5, it says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So this first phrase here, now the God of patience and consolation, it actually ties right back into the previous verse. If you look at that verse 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. This is actually the same language. I don't know why the KJV changes the word here um, from comfort to consolation. The NASV um, translates this right here in verse 4, it says, Through pay, perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, 
And then in verse 5 it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. It's the same word. It's the exact same words that are used in verse 4 and verse 5. It's saying the same thing. It's saying that patience and comfort or encouragement is found in the Scriptures. Because the God of the Scriptures is the God of patience and encouragement. I think we can make this connection out of this as well. If you are simply going to the Scriptures for patience and encouragement, you won't get it unless the God of the Scriptures gives it to you. We can see this principle played out in, in the Scriptures themselves. Jesus said to the Pharisees, said, He said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they testify of Me. In other words, eternal life is not simply from the Scriptures. But I thought as Reformed people, we believe in sola scriptura. We do. But that does not mean that salvation is in the Scriptures. Eternal life is not in the Scriptures. Is that not what Jesus has said? What does He mean by this, though? He means you are searching the Scriptures because you think eternal life is in them, but the Scriptures were given to point to Me, to whom has the words of eternal life. You see the connection? The Scriptures bear witness of Jesus, whom has the words of eternal life. There's not some mystical thing about the Scriptures that if someone would just read them, they'd have eternal life. We don't believe that, right? I don't know of anybody that says, if you just, just read your Bible, and then you'll be saved. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees probably knew their Bibles better than most, probably everybody in here. And by know them, I meant they read them. They actually memorized them. In order to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the, the Tanakh, the Old, Old Testament. You had to have them memorized to be a Pharisee. So they had them all memorized. They even had pieces of Scripture tied to their clothing. Right? They walked around with a the, with the thing on their forehead and a thing hanging from them. But they had Scriptures written on them. They taught them to their children. They preached them. Yet according to Jesus... He says they're nothing more than whited tombs. He said they were beautiful caskets full of dead men's bones. They're beautiful on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. They did not have eternal life, though they had the Scriptures memorized. Though you could sit down and have a theological conversation with them, and they might school you when it comes to the Old Testament text. They knew not the one to whom the Scriptures pointed to. We know groups today that are this way, right? They're well studied in the Scriptures. They may be able to quote much more Scripture than you, yet they don't know Christ. This is a little side note, but I could probably take you to one of those groups. One of those groups that I ran into down at the beach. The black Hebrew Israelites. They, they rattled all scripture like crazy. But they didn't know Christ. And actually, Satan himself knows the scriptures. Probably better than all of us. Yet he does not have eternal life. So the scriptures themselves do not grant eternal life, nor do they grant patience, comfort, and hope by themselves. 
You know, you know, Paul says it in verse 4 that the, the Scriptures give us in, in patience, encouragement, and hope. They don't do it by themselves. There are many atheists that have read their Bibles, right? Far fewer than I'd like to admit. They say they read it, but then you start talking to them. They haven't really read it. They read, you know, a few chapters in Genesis, and I've read my whole Bible. But they don't get patience and comfort or encouragement from the Scriptures. An unbeliever, when they read the Scriptures, they don't get patience and comfort and encouragement. Why not? Because they do not know the God of the Scriptures. The patience and comfort actually come from God, but it's through the Scriptures. You see, that's what script, Sola Scriptura teaches us. It, Sola Scriptura just means Scripture alone. That's what it teaches us. We believe in justification by grace alone and by, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. But it's taught to us through the Scriptures alone. All of it is found in the Scriptures, but our salvation and comfort and patience is truly found in God. The Scriptures are the tool to bring us there. They are not the end. They are means to an end. This is the same way that faith works. Faith doesn't save you. Hear me again, just in case you think I'm a heretic. Faith does not save you. But sola fide, faith alone, right? That's not what sola fide means either. The Lord Jesus Christ saves you, and it's by faith that we look to Him. Faith is not the end, but the means to the end of looking to Christ for our justification. Faith didn't fulfill the law in your place. Faith didn't die on that Roman tree for your sins. Faith didn't raise from the grave three days later and ascend to the right hand of the Father where He sat down. Christ did that. And by faith, we look to Him as the Savior. The same principle is true in our current text. Our patience and encouragement comes from God. Without faith, we won't get patience and encouragement from the Scriptures because we don't know God. And God is the God of patience and encouragement. We can see a little bit more of this in another verse. Turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter seven verse six. It says, Nevertheless, God that comforts those that are cast down. Who comforts those that are cast down? God. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus wasn't necessarily the source of comfort. God is. He sent Titus to comfort them, and the comfort that Titus would give could only be found in the Lord. It wasn't that Titus was so great that he could comfort them, but the God of Titus was so great that he would comfort them by sending Titus. 
Titus is not the source of comfort but the Lord. And how would he comfort them? Just turn back maybe a page or two in your, in your Bible here to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. We comfort one another with the comfort that God gave us as we went through our trials and tribulations. In other words, the hard things that the Lord has brought you through, though they, they, they are used as a good testimony to the faithfulness of God, and we can use them to comfort others who are going through trials as well. And this is a work of the Spirit as well. Just as a understanding the Scriptures is from the Spirit, you know, you could, you could read this to your blue in the face every single day for all of your life, and die and never understand the scriptures unless the spirit give you understanding so just as the, the, the understanding of the scriptures is from the spirit looking and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ is also from the spirit is it not the spirit must awaken us read John chapter 3 you must be born again how does one be born again that's what Nicodemus was like how does one get born again does he enter back into his mother's womb and be born again and he's like no the spirit does it it means born from above. The Spirit comes down and makes you alive and gives you faith to believe upon Christ. But also comforting one another is from the Spirit. The word for comfort, actually, is almost the same word that's used of the Spirit. In this context, in, in uh, Romans, it's Paraclesis. Jesus calls the Spirit Paracletos. Listen to John 14, 26. Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the Comforter. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. We can see a couple things just in that verse right there. First, comfort comes by the Spirit. The Spirit is the comforter. The Spirit is the one who comforts us. And let me stop for a minute and back up a second. When I say comfort, I don't mean like these comfortable chairs. That's not what comfort means in the Scriptures. Comfort is a compound word. It's, it's come and fort. We, we know what a fort is, right? It, it means with strength. That's what it means. It means to strengthen us. That's what the Spirit does. He is the comforter. He doesn't just come and make us like, oh, it's so comfortable. He comes and gives us strength as we're fighting this battle. But the Holy Spirit comforts us, and it says, and He shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever has said to you. So without the Spirit, the disciples never would have understood Him. So the comfort by which we comfort one another is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit being God, we can rightly say 
That He is the God of patience and comfort. And as we get our patience and comfort from the Scriptures, we can know that it's only given to us by the God of the Scriptures. So yes, dig into the Scriptures, but know that what you gain out of the Scriptures is what God grants you. The Scriptures alone do not give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding, patience, comfort, or hope. But the God of the Scriptures gives those to us as we dig into the Scriptures. So let's go to our next point here. I'm going to go back here to Romans. Just be of the same mind. He says, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Be of the same mind. Now if you didn't notice this, this is a prayer right here that Paul's doing. Paul is addressing God in intercession for these Roman Christians. He's praying that the God of patience and comfort grant them something. And it's nothing physical per se here. It's not like God, please grant them a bunch of money in their bank accounts. Please grant this person a new, they didn't have cars, but like a new camel or something. Some new sandals. What he is asking ties into the whole of chapter 14 and up to this point in chapter 15. That they be like-minded one toward another. That's what he's asking. That y'all be like-minded toward one another. Can you see how this ties into the last chapter? The brother or sister that comes into the church that is weak in certain areas, we are to cover their weakness. We are to bear their infirmities, remember? Or like Paul said to the Corinthians, to the weak, I became weak that I might gain the weak. He was of the same mind as them. That's what he was saying. In this sense, if they weren't free to eat or drink, he wasn't free to eat or drink. He was like-minded. Now he's praying that these Roman Christians be like-minded as well. Now, the question is, why wouldn't Paul just say, you people in Rome need to be like-minded? Instead, he prays that God grants it to them. That's what he's doing. He's praying that God give them like-mindedness. Not just saying, y'all need to be like-minded. Well, because once again, like-mindedness comes from God. It doesn't come from one another. It doesn't come naturally. It only comes by the power of God through the work of His Spirit. Now mind you, Paul wasn't the only one to pray this. Notice the last phrase in verse 5 here. He says, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Now, I think there's two things that we can see from this. First, this is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. Let's turn back there and look at it. John chapter 17, we'll look at verse 9. 
I picked up a little more of the context on this, but I'm going to be reading a, a few verses here. By a few, I mean like 14. Verse 9, John 17, 9, he says, I pray for them. Now, this, these are the words of Christ. This is Jesus's, what, what is called the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. Talking about his disciples. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name, in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas right there. And now come I to thee, and these things I, I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's you, Christian, sitting in here. Jesus right here is praying for you. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in them, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That's one of my favorite verses. That's the reason I read the verse 23, because the last phrase in there is one of my favorite verses, that Jesus would say that God loves us just as he loves his son. But anyways, to the text here, Jesus prayed that his people be one. To be in unity. So we can see that it's important to God that we be like-minded. And I think this we can know too that, that we will be, right? We will be. Why will we be? If Jesus prayed for it, unless you're going to argue that the Father doesn't answer the Son's prayers, ask anything according to His will and it will be granted to you. Did, was Jesus praying against the Father's will? I very much doubt that. We will be one. As, at least in the essentials of the faith, right? All Christians are one. This is why, you know, you ever met somebody from another country, maybe a missionary or something come over, and you start talking to them, and it's like, man, we have everything in common. Like, I feel like you're my brother, my brother from another mother, right? I, I was like, I grew up with you. How do, how do we have so much in common?
And you really would not have anything in common if you were outside of Christ. Because we're one. We are like-minded when it comes to the gospel, to the person and work of Christ. We are like-minded when it comes to the deity of Christ and the sinfulness of man. These things we all agree on. There's not a Christian walking to the earth that denies those truths. But we want more, don't we? We do. We want to be like-minded even in the non-essentials of the faith, right? We do. By that I mean, I think we would all agree that we don't want to really argue or debate about baptism, eschatology, Lord's Supper, church offices and their roles, these kind of things. We don't really want to debate those things, right? I hope not. We want to have unity in these things. We desire that. And only one can bring that about, and it's God. So we should follow in the footsteps of Paul and Jesus and pray that we have unity, that we are one, that we be like-minded in all things. The other thing I wanted to see by it, when it says according to Christ Jesus, he wants us to be like-minded according to Christ Jesus. What, what else does that mean? That means that Jesus bought our unity with his blood. Remember our context here. It's of a Roman Gentile church, and the person who comes in and can't eat things, certain things or drink certain things, it, it was the Jewish person who, who thought certain things were still unclean. The context is of two people groups that actually did not like each other. The Jews and the Gentiles in the first century did not like each other. A Gentile to the Jews, in their own words, were dogs. They, they believed them to be dogs. They were outside of, of the faith. They were outside of the kingdom. They were outside of the people of God. They were outside of His covenant. And they were dirty. They did not like each other. And Paul is telling them to be like-minded. You two people groups that really hated one another. Be like-minded. Turn to Ephesians 2. We'll see a, a little bit more of this. That Jesus bought our unity with His blood. Ephesians 2.11 Now remember, the church of Ephesus was a Gentile church too. So it's full of Gentiles. Paul's writing to the Gentile church. And he says, Wherefore remember that you, being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh, near, by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace. He hath made both one. What's He talking about both? Jew and Gentile. He has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man so making peace. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He broke down that middle wall of partition and, and he brings them together to make one new man. 
In verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Jews and Gentiles. You two hated one another. There was an enmity there. You two despised one another. But the fact that Jesus Christ came and died on that cross and His blood was shed for you, you're made one. He came and preached peace. You have peace with one another. You are like-minded with one another. You are one new man in Christ. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, now Jews and Gentiles both eat at the same table. Boy, that was against the culture, was it not? It was so much ingrained in the culture, if you remember the story of Peter, where Peter was sitting with the Gentiles and eating, and then the Jews come walking into the place, and what did Peter do? He got up. I'm going to go sit with the Jews. I'm not going to sit with the Gentiles anymore. And if you remember, Paul rebuked him right in his face. That's what Paul said. I rebuked him right in his face. Why? Because we eat at the same table now. The Gentiles are not unclean dogs and the Jews are clean. There's no more division. There's really, Paul says it time and again, that there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. That middle wall partition has been torn down by Christ and He has made both parties one new man. Christ purchased this unity. And He wasn't just giving lip service, but He actually died to bring it about. And He did it. So, so be like-minded because Jesus paid for it, your unity with His blood. And pray for it when you don't have it. And to our third point here, receive one another to the glory of God. I'm going to go back here to Romans again. And I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. That ye may be that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now remember I said I think the chapter break should come after verse seven. You see why? Verse fourteen, or chapter fourteen and verse one, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. So it starts with receive the weaker brother. He goes on to teach us some of, the, some of the good doctrine on eating and drinking, or better yet, having our freedoms in Christ. He gives us examples of Christ in verse 3 and verse 5 of chapter 15. Then he tells us, wherefore or therefore, receive one another. He starts chapter 14 and verse 1. He says, receive the weaker brother. He says right here in verse uh, 7 of, of chapter 15, receive one another. Those are about the bookends right there. So he starts this whole section with receive ye, then ends the section with receive ye. And the multiple subsections throughout the chapter is teaching us how to receive by not judging or offending our brother, by pleasing them, by bearing with their weaknesses as Christ has done for us. 
Therefore, receive you one another. And we can see why to receive one another in these two verses as well. That we may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify God. Brethren, can we truly say this? That we have one mind and one mouth? Or we could say it this way. That we believe the same thing and preach the same thing? I feel this is a statement of a true church. Are there people in agreement on their doctrine and preaching? And I do think we have that here. Are we perfect in it? Are we perfect in anything? No. However, I'll tell you, I've been to multiple churches and talked to many pastors, and some will say, you know, I'm Reformed, but the people in the congregation probably don't even know what Reformed is. And I'm thinking, that's not good. The people should know what the pastor believes. Why would I, first, why would I even get up here and speak and you not know what I believe? Maybe you don't know every single little doctrine that I believe, but for the most part you do. But let me not rabbit trail too much here. This is speaking about the, the community of believers being of one mind and one mouth. Yes, it's about believing the same doctrine, but there's more than that as well. Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. He tells the Philippian church, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he explains what he means by that. Then he goes on into Christ being equal with God. Christ being equal with God, yet he made himself of no reputation, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. That's the mind that he's talking about. That's the mindset. That's the one-mindedness. It's not to think too highly of yourself, but become a servant to your brother. So it's not just a doctrinal mindset, like we all believe the doctrines of grace, we all believe in you know, post-mill thought, or, or we are our covenantal, though I think those things may be important, those things mean nothing if we don't have this servant mindset towards one another. Don't give lip service to that. That's our great example. Our great example is not me, it's not you, it's not even the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul gave us our example, and it's Jesus Christ. And that's what he says. He, even though he was equal with God, took upon himself the form of a servant. And if you notice, Paul here in Romans mentions Christ four times in these five verses. He mentions him again in the next verse that we aren't making it to, verse 8. It's because we look to him. Paul, you know, Paul is not the focus here. He doesn't say, you know, uh, for even I please not myself. He doesn't say, you know, according to the Apostle Paul. He says, according to Christ Jesus. We stay focused on him, and then how shall we treat our neighbor? By receiving them. That's, that's, the, that's the example that's given to us. By being of one mindset and one mouth to glorify God, just as Christ received us to the glory of God. He's the example. 
You say, I see, Jeremy, you, you do stupid stuff all the time. You're probably right, I do. I see the sin that you just did. You, you haven't seen half of it. But I'll tell you what, you haven't seen his. You haven't seen his foolishness. You haven't seen his sin because he doesn't have any. And he's our example. You're like, what's this? What's all this about glory? It says, you know, we, we may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. And it says, receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. What's all this about glory? Let me cover this before I close. To glorify God is to praise Him. Is to magnify Him. Not as though we make Him bigger because we can't make God bigger. But we magnify Him in our lives with our mouth and with our actions. We make Him known. It's to give honor to to hold in honor. So why should we do this with God? Why should, why should we give honor to God? Why should we praise God? Why should we, we seek to magnify God in our lives? Because He's the King of glory. He is our King. He is the Creator of everything that we see or touch or taste or smell and there is no greater than God. And we, when we give... Glory to something smaller is called idolatry and it's sinful. And this would be true even of God. You know, God does everything for His own glory, right? If you know any of the catechism, that's one of the questions. What is, why does God create you for His own glory? If Yahweh is God and He esteems anything more than Himself, it would be idolatry and sinful. Remember God, what He said to Abraham? Abraham, I swear by Myself because I can swear by none greater. All that God does is for His own glory and we should do what likewise. Because He's worthy and He is the greatest being worthy of all praise. Without Him, you wouldn't have your mouth by which you can either sing praises to Him or blaspheme His name. He gave you your mouth. Without Him, you would not have the life nor energy, energy to get to go to work, to raise a family, to do anything in this life. So He most certainly deserves for you to lay down your life for Him. And isn't that Paul's initial thought after the doctrinal portion of Romans? That's right where Paul's mind went. He teaches us great doctrine through 1 through 11 of uh, chapters of Romans. And then he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto you, God. He says, it says in KJV, that, which is your reasonable service. It actually means your rational worship, your logical worship. The most logical thing you can do is if you believe Romans 1 through 11 is lay down your life. 
to give everything that you have for him. That sounds radical, doesn't it? I think it sounds biblical. So as we go about this life within the community of faith, let's receive one another and have like-mindedness. And as we go out into the world, let's go with the mindset of servitude and seeking to glorify God through our thoughts, words, and actions. For Christ received us to the glory of God. So let's get into our application here. Our call to faith and repentance. As always, you know, I always come to the unbeliever here. person in here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You may sit in here as an unbeliever and feel that you have patience and comfort. Especially with the nice chairs that we have in here, right? Nice reclining, heated seats. However comfortable you may feel sitting in a church service with cushioned chairs, you should feel no comfort for the life after. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the seat you sit in should be uncomfortable. Nothing in this life should feel comfortable if you're dead in your sins. You should be terrified and completely uncomfortable to step off into eternity. You know, I say often, this stat just kind of it blows my mind, that's why I say it so often, but almost every second, almost two people die. It's just, it, it's mind-blowing to think that. You know, during this church service, probably close to 10,000 people will die. And nowhere in God's revealed will does He promise us a certain amount of days that we will be alive. He never says, don't worry, you have tomorrow. Nowhere. Out of all the promises of God, you don't find one for tomorrow. Actually, you find the opposite. That this life is fleeting. It's but a vapor. I don't know if y'all have ever been up north when it's cold, when you, when you breathe out and that, that you can see your breath and then it disappears. That's what your life is like. God holds our days in His hands. I think He said it to Job. He said, I have set the boundaries and you will not pass it. He set whatever, however many days you are to live and you won't live one second past that. The very one that you sin against every day, every hour, every second of your existence as an unbeliever is the same one who could cut you off from the land of the living today and it's the same one that you will have to stand in front of when He cuts you off. So you should feel no comfort in your sins, knowing that God deals justly with sin. Every last sin is paid for. It's not like our justice system. We have a perverted justice system where you maybe, maybe you murder somebody, you can, become, you, you can be free and not pay for it. God does not work like that. Every single sin is paid for, either by you in hell or by the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. That's the two places it's paid for. See, that's why Jesus came. It wasn't just so we'd have some cool story of God becoming a man. It wasn't so we would just have another holiday on our calendar. It was to satisfy the justice of God. 
God the Son came down from heaven and took on flesh. He lived under the law and completely and perfectly obeyed it. Something none of us can do. And He earned righteousness for His people by doing that. Then He went to that Roman cross to be crucified for the sins of His people to satisfy justice. That's what it was about. Sins must be paid for, and He paid for it perfectly on that cross for His people. Then He rose from the grave three days later. Was seen of over 500 people. Of whom most died martyrs' deaths. Because they know what they saw. They saw the dead Savior. They saw Him put into the tomb. And then they saw Him three days later. Not only did they see Him, remember He shows up because Thomas didn't believe it. And He shows up to Thomas and says, touch my hands. Touch my side. And from the accounts, Thomas became a martyr as he went out to preach the gospel. Was speared straight through him, preaching the gospel. Now you think for a second Thomas would have went to his death if he would have known that Jesus was a farce. No. He knew. I saw him dead. Now he's alive. And I'm going forth with this message. And you can kill me if you want. But I'm going forth with it until I die. And that's what they did. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sat down victorious over death, sin, Satan, and hell. And now he reigns as king. And that's the only place you should find your comfort. Not in some lazy boy chair. Not in money. Not in circumstances. But in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you don't know him this morning, I pray that God gives you faith and repentance to look upon him this morning. And to the believers here. Can any one of us here say that we are perfectly like-minded with each other. Can any of us here say that we have one mind and one mouth glorifying God perfectly? We can't. And typically the people that act like they're always like-minded with everybody, they're either cowards or actors. This isn't easy to do, brethren. Because we all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life. We're all in different times of our walk with Christ too, right? Some may be babes in Christ. Some may be, may be mature. And we have everything in between. Yet we are called to be of one mind. So what does this mean? This means we need patience. I mean, if you're a mature believer and an immature believer is saying something or doing something you may not agree with, how should we respond? By crushing them, right? <laughs> By encouraging them. Not in their sins. I'm not talking about them doing something sinful. But if it's just, you know, not how we would do something or say something. Let me give you an example. 
I heard many young Reformed folks trying to explain the doctrines of grace. And maybe they wouldn't say things exactly the way I would say it. They may use words that say, you know, God's selection or something like that. Should I correct them every time they say something, not the way I would say it? I don't think so. I should praise God that God is growing them, and I should want to be part of the maturity by God's grace. I should want to come alongside that brother or sister and build them up in the faith. How about on the flip side? The young believer whose zeal outweighs their knowledge. Which I'd take a hundred of those over one whose knowledge outweighs their zeal. But their zeal outweighs their knowledge and they're always going out evangelizing on a regular basis. And the older one in the faith may be sitting there and hasn't done that for years. Should the younger one just crush the older one because they aren't as zealous? No. But rather come alongside and encourage them to come out with you. Even if it means just to watch. You don't even have to preach. Just come along. I'll do all the talking. This is striving to be like-minded. It's to seek the edification of your brethren. It's to see them build up in Christ. It's like Paul also says in Philippians 2, is to have the same mind as Christ of a servant, not as though I'm better than you or vice versa, but for all of us to think little of ourselves and highly of our neighbor. And this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's hard to do, ain't it? But that's our call. That's a command there. That's, I didn't make that up. Turn, if you want to, turn and read Philippians chapter 2. That's our calling. Will we be perfect in this? No. But when we fail, what's our response? It's to look to Christ who did this perfectly and repent of when we fail. It's to rest in the fact that Jesus, our great King, did it perfectly in our behalf and we should strive to do better. Let's go to our call to war here. Here's something I see a lot within Christendom. Brothers and sisters arguing and fighting with themselves about what mode of baptism is correct. About what eschatological view is correct. About a plethora of doctrines within the faith. Y'all seen this too, probably. You don't know social media if you haven't. You'll see it real quick. What we should see is Christians coming together even if we disagree on certain doctrines and being one mind and one mouth to glorify God. We should see Baptists and Presbyterians preaching Christ alongside one another. We should see pre-mill and post-mill both going into the culture with this message of hope that is found in Christ Jesus. We We should see brothers willing to put their own neck on the line for their brother of a different denomination. They're my brother in Christ. 
Yeah, but they believe they should baptize babies. Does that make them an unbeliever? No. It makes them wrong. <laughs> but I'm sure there's many things they can look at me and say, Jeremy's wrong on that. But do they believe the gospel? Yes, they're my brother in Christ. Let's go to war together. Will we agree on everything? Not on this side of glory. And I actually, I may not even agree with myself sometimes. How do you expect me to agree with every single person in the, in, within the church and you to agree with every single person in the church when we don't oft, sometimes don't even agree with ourselves? I go back and listen to some messages sometimes. I'm like, I don't even know why I said that. No, it was nothing heretical. It was just <laughs> sometimes when you get away from the notes. Let me ask you this. Do you think if this early church in Rome got together with the early church in Corinth that they would have just easily been of one mind? I think you're crazy to think that. However, we know from the book of Acts that they would have been of one mouth, right? They'd all be preaching Christ crucified, which shows that they were of one mind. Even though this church had their issues, this church has this is issues, and you don't agree upon everything, you do agree upon this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is King, and He is worthy of us going out and preaching forth His gospel message. And I will die alongside of you, brother, in Corinth. That's the message we're called to preach. Not baptism, not eschatological views, not spiritual gifts, but strictly Jesus Christ and His gospel. So let's seek to be of one mind and one mouth together here. Let's start here. And a good place for each family to start is in their own homes, right? Train up your children in the ways of the Lord. Husbands and wives, get on one mind. And then come together with another family and do the same. And as we grow together, then let's go out together with the message of Jesus Christ for the advancement of God's kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen.